0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. This hour, I'm joined by two authors whose books are set in different times and places, but whose writing shows characters who manifest their deep psychological preoccupations in imaginative and at times physical manifestations, drawing in other people, the landscape and animals, particularly, strangely enough, birds. They are also in their own ways books about writing trauma and uh, just really the act of being an author, I guess. In, in and of itself. Robbie Arnott joins me later in the hour to talk about flames, set in Tasmania and following the odyssey of a woman fleeing her brother's strange plot to build her a coffin while she is still alive, following her mother's death and resurrection, something the McAllister women apparently do, winding through stories of a fisherman and his relationship with, an, with a, a seal a seal. A water rat that is really a god, and a wombat farmer who is whose growing obsession with a killer cormorant threatens to consume him. But first, James Christina will discuss his tortuous exploration of a young man in Melbourne in the 1990s, circling what was then a potential death sentence, an HIV diagnosis or a potential one, and shadows of the atrocities of the Bosnian conflict. Through his deepening infatuation with his oblique lover Zlatko, who begins as a muse but increasingly colonises his dreams, imagination and writing.
1: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station 3RR 102.7 in Melbourne.
0: You're on Triple R's backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and my next guest takes us back. To Melbourne in the 1990s when HIV AIDS was still a potential death sentence and the atrocities of the Bosnian War were still leaking into the international consciousness. But James Christina's debut novel, Antidote to a Curse, is more than a meditation on the recent past. It's, thought prov- it's a thought provoking exploration of the creative process, how it colonises a writer. It's also an exploration of trauma and obsession and how these deep impulses can drive and consume a creative person, particularly a writer, James Christina. Welcome to Backstory. Hello, Mel. I really feel like I'm still processing this novel on a lot of different levels, both in terms of, you know, its reflection on the craft of writing, but also a lot of the kind of uh, deep psychological impulses that you cover and some of the historical kind of elements that that kind of fill this book that speak to me, but maybe, maybe, you know, might be more of a historical experience for some other reader. Readers. Talk to me about this book and maybe maybe set it up a little for readers.
2: Right. Um, it's quite a compact uh, novel. There are a number of strands. So the reader, I think it, it requires the reader to be quite busy to delineate these strands. You have a primary story that's set in Melbourne during the 1990s, the mid-1990s, post-1995, and you have also, if you like, the um, the secondary story, which is primarily set in Bosnia and relates to the Balkan War.
0: So it's really, um, I mean, that's kind of the premise, I guess, in a very loose sense, because almost immediately from the very opening pages, you are slipping between what is kind of objective reality in the context of the book and the actual and the writer's imagination. Everything is really seen through the eyes of the writer, um, Silvio, who yes. is, you know, 29 years of age, who is circling this potential diagnosis. He's had some kind of a one night stand and an encounter uh, with a stranger. He has, I presume, had some sort of a breakage, um, you know, condom breakage. Um, that's alluded to throughout the book. You're sort sort of wind in this sort of sense of, you know, the thinness of this membrane that's supposed to protect us in mo- in lots of different senses. Um, but right from the beginning, you're not sure if you're in the writer's imagination or you're, you're actually in the action of the book. And that's a deliberate technique, I imagine. So talk to me a little bit about how you've constructed this book, because, you know, really, you can't get away from talking about that when you're talking about the narrative.
2: Yes. Um, it has been described as a psychological novel, and I think you're right to say that you are in the writer's imagination. The And I think the primary reason for that is the writer, if you like, Silvio is a writer, the, the protagonist, is reading the signs around him, making sense of what is not so apparent to him keeping a journal at the same time trying to construct some structure and meaning um to what's going on around him if you like
0: yeah and look at the the writers um there's also almost an alter ego that goes on here this character ludovico um who starts to crop up um so, so to kind of preface this as well, uh, Silvio meets a young man who is originally from Bosnia. Um, his name is Latko. Um, he's got some ambiguity as well because his first name is Serbian, his last name, um, is potentially Muslim. Um, his backstory doesn't hold water all the time, like he's an unreliable character. Um, you get the sense that he's hiding things right from the beginning, but he's, he's a very opaque character. He's obviously Silvio's lover, um, but he's also, you know, withholding a lot of who he is. But also Silvio's trying to steal, you know, his past. And so Silvio's dreams, which he he writes down to try and, you know, uh, sidestep writer's block, um, gradually wind into these kind of creative narratives that Silvio works in. Um, I really loved this, this book because, you know, what it really does is shows you you know, the process of creating life into art um, in a kind of you know engaging sense so you know you don't really leave a lot of pause like there are sections that are devoted to dreams or devoted to these kind of um, sequences you know narrated through the eyes of Ludovico um, that are clearly the story that Silvio's creating in whatever way but that bleeds into the, the main narrative you're sort of really exposing the art of, of crafting writing in the first place so can you talk to me about why you chose to do this?
2: Um, yes, I think that's a, a great question. Oh, why? I think that um, it highlights who Silvio is and what he's attempting to do and where he is at that particular time. He's in between places, the same as Latko, and he's dealing with a lot of unknowns. The um, the HIV prognosis is one unknown. He's also struggling with writer's block and he's also communicating with Slako on a fairly regular basis. But like you said, slacko sometimes is forthcoming and sometimes is not. And there's a lot. There's, there's a great big culture divide between the two, if you like. And that's also an unknown. It's also a challenge for Silvio to make sense of.
0: It's a really interesting um, relationship and I do want to touch on that as well. But there's a really fascinating element to it as well that you sort of feel like Silvio is really trying to paint his Zlatko into a corner. Every so often, Zlatko will crop up and... and disagree with some kind of rendering of his history that Silvio has just come up with and he's like no it wasn't like that or they didn't look like that or this person wasn't that way and you sort of see how you know Silvio has gotten so lost in his own imaginings about this person that actually he stopped seeing him entirely as a person and that really struck me. There is a habit I have to say that writers have of sort of you know recording life you know there's a saying that everything is copy i guess and and you know beware if you date a writer because they're they're stealing pieces of you uh, all the time um whether or not they intend to uh but i think that there's an element to this that is is slightly not slightly it's darker <laughs> it's just darker um in both senses, both of these men are doing things that are, you know, that are really quite damaging um, to another person. Um, you get the sense that, you know, that that he's he's not really seeing this person at all in some ways, but equally that, that, that's let go when he's talking about the people from his past, that he's hiding some of the things that he's done that are not so wonderful. Um, I want to talk a bit about this element now that uh, the historical element, because we had a bit of a chat before yes. off air about this and and whether people really understand some of the, the, the deep kind of um, tides of history that are underpinning this, that really are being circled by this narrative. Uh, the first one is, of course, the Bosnian War. Can you talk about why you chose to kind of plumb this um, as the, the point of trauma that's being circled by this narrative?
2: Um, it relates both to the time the place and of course the protagonists. So the places that are referred to in the novel relate directly to the um, two protagonists. I think you are right earlier on in your discussion when you spoke about maybe Co not being altogether forthcoming in the information that he has and therefore maybe being to a degree an unreliable narrator. But I also agree with you about Silvio in that as we um, get further into the book, we begin to realise that Silvio is really forming a lot of the information that he's receiving imaginatively. I don't know if that's damaging. I just think that he's just very keen to use the rudiments of what is related to in the story and to to construct something from it. I think the process for him is actually quite positive. It's quite life-affirming, and uh, I think we see that in some of the imagery and the metaphors. You mentioned the birds, earlier on in your introduction and what have you. So I I do agree that there's a degree of um, unreliable narration going on. But I think it's done with the intention of actually creating something. And I suppose this is what writers do. They they might have the bare bones of a story and then they make it their own. And there's, of, of course, always the imaginative input.
0: Mm. So talk a little bit about this, because uh, what really is going on here is the act of turning, you know, great wrongs or perceived fears into something creative, as you've discussed, Um, you know, the metaphor of birds constantly comes up throughout this book. Uh, yes. Zlatko, apparently in a past life, was a, a rare bird collector. Um, suddenly the motif of birds is wound all throughout um, Silvio's imaginings, as is this kind of metaphor of blood, which has the obvious, you know, obvious significance for his uh, potential HIV diagnosis, which, which looms until the end. It's never quite resolved. Yes. Um, so talk to me about this act of t- turning or rendering these potential traumatic things into something more positive or creative.
2: Yes well first of all like you said it is set in the mid-1990s and at that time a, a reading for HIV took 12 weeks and that was referred to as the window period if you like from possible transmission to actual you know diagnosis. So we've got a window period that's quite significant and it's a window period that Silvio feels that he needs to feel some way and attempts to do it in a creative way. Throughout that um, window period, if you like, that 12-week period, it's, he encounters his writer's block and he, he encounters a lot of unknowns. And for him, I suppose, that period could have been a period of stasis, if you like. But he's trying to wrench himself away from that and do something far more active and positive, turning something, I think, in a way, potentially very damaging and dark into something quite positive. It's almost an act of salvation to a degree.
0: Is that the, uh, I suppose, the message, I guess, of um, of the title of this book, Antidote to a Curse?
2: I think that it allows itself to be read that way if you do perceive the act as being a positive and creative one. I mean, that's open to debate and discussion, of course.
0: It's very interesting, though, that we've just had this discussion because some of the elements um, that I was seeing when I was looking at this, while I can see that this was his way of dealing with the situation, I did feel as though it does immediately create this tension because some of the act of writing can be one that actually... You know, it really does pull out or I guess it's a poultice for some of the things that are deep within us. And that can be a very uncomfortable process. So I felt as though this wasn't, you know, an act that was without pain. Like he was he was really drawing out some of the deep things that were being that would otherwise have been suppressed. Um, and I think for Zlatko as well, he had to face up with the things that he had done in his past that he would prefer not to face up to.
2: So, yes, I agree. It is it is about um, confronting the past, maybe being held accountable, um, as well as dealing with the unknowns, all concurrently, all while trying to construct a narrative. And these are uncomfortable dealings, if you like. They're very challenging. It's, it's a very challenging time in Silvio's life, as well as Latko. I think that there's a positive and at times dark exchange going on, but nevertheless probably a meaningful one for both of them.
0: Yeah, that's really great. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and my guest today is James Christina, whose book An Antidote or Antidote to a Curse, I don't know why I feel the need to add an article there, it's called Antidote to a Curse, uh, is actually provoking this discussion um, about the act of writing and how we sometimes pull in these these deep kind of elements of trauma and um, and fear and, and render them into some kind of a text or form. I I am really interested as well in, in some of the creation of these characters. Um, how did you a- approach this process? Because the whole book has a very, and I'm sure you've heard this before, a dreamlike quality to it because, you know, you have the kind of creative, imaginative uh, narrative blending into the more realist narrative. How did you do that? Did you kind of approach it, writing it in a sort of dreamlike um, language and then sort of, you know, winding those those elements in. Talk to me about your craft here.
2: I actually wonder um, whether that was perhaps um, a reflection on the sort of life that I've lived by teaching overseas and living in so many different countries and so many um, disparate, if you like, cultures and whether there was an attempt to sort of bring these various aspects together and as a result you perhaps get this dreamlike quality. I was also thinking, as you were mentioning that, that um, perhaps maybe there's also a degree of poetic influence there too because as a a long-time student of literature And having read so so much um, poetry and being very influenced by it, I just wonder whether the um, imagery has been infiltrated by a lot of the poetry that I've read. So I I wonder whether these two aspects, the travel and if you like the um, literary reading, have sort of um, blended together, if you like.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like there's a real elliptical quality to this uh, to this writing um and motifs that are blended in um, so that characters are um, are living out you know other characters' experiences, uh, you know, and we're coming back to have greater understanding of different events in a repetition that that I think feels um, you know very poetic. Um, it, it's really quite a, quite a kind of meditative book in that sense Mm -hmm. it's it's the reason why i think when i when uh you first came into the studio earlier i said i really feel like i needed another reading of this book which is how i would approach poetry as well to read over it to experience it in in a different light uh, having read through then to read it again with a greater understanding how would you suggest people read this book
2: um I think that the points you've highlighted are very um, apt because it was a very ambitious novel to write because of that binary structure, if you like. You have one strand set in Melbourne, one strand set in Bosnia, but there are cross-references made all the time, even on the level, if you like, since we were speaking about poetry, even on the level of imagery and metaphor and what have you. So it would... It is a meditative novel and it is one to experience, but of course all those signs and symbols can't be digested just on one reading, I don't think, because of all that cross-referencing, if you like. So I would like to think that it is a novel that does invite a second reading, if those people who are reading it of course are interested in doing that
0: i would definitely encourage that and i think there's a lot in there even just the delight of seeing uh the restaurant stalactites kind Mm. of immortalized in literature uh there's also i think the other settings are you know the silvio's place of residence and a sex shop it's a wonderful kind of um corollary of strange disparate parts that's going on here but stalactites definitely gets a huge mention in this book um which is something of a of a delight um I, I did think that uh, there, were, there was one other kind of topic I did want you to address and, and that's of course this is this is filled with kind of literary allusions, obviously a reflection of your own interest in literature. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes, I have actually been asked this question a few times and I actually find it a very difficult question to answer because um, I'm showing my vintage to a degree and having read literature and studied literature over a, a period of a few decades now... Um, if i find that you know you are influenced by certain writers at different times in your life and there have been a whole number of shifts if you like and one of the pleasures of reading i mean to this day is discovering new writers discovering new artists and um seeing how that they they may influence you
0: yeah it's a wonderful thought look i i'm I would love to talk to you more about this book. In fact, uh, I would love to go over it and have you in again to talk about my new insights. Uh, Perhaps that may be possible at some point. At any rate, thank you so much, James Christina, for coming in and talking to us about your book.
2: A pleasure. Thank you, Mel. Uh,
0: That was James Christina talking about Antidote to a Curse, uh, which is out now through transit lounge you've been listening to triple r's backstory i'm mel kranenberg up next uh women who come back to life carrying around bits of the landscape a fisherman's deep bond with a seal and other strange magic realist happenings robbie arnott joins us to talk about his new novel
1: you are listening to a podcast from australia's best-known community radio station three triple r 102.7 in melbourne
0: you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR, a show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and my next guest uh, is someone who's very familiar to readers of Kill Your Darlings and The Lifted Brow. His writing has been published in both of those journals and also Ireland, a wonderful journal that comes out of uh, the great southern state, uh, Tasmania, of course. Uh, he won the 2014 Scribe Nonfiction Writing Prize, but it's his work of fiction that occupies us today, uh, a deeply imaginative work uh, that actually wanders through a cast of incredibly unusual characters, all somehow absorbed into their environment in a quite literal way at times, ranging from a water rat who is really a god to a young woman fleeing her brother's plan to build her a coffin so she won't be subjected to the family curse Resurrection, Robbie Arnott. Welcome to Backstory, and uh, I would love to talk about your latest book, Flames.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Mel, and thanks for having me.
0: Such a pleasure. Now, this is a. Uh, can we call this book magic realism? I really do want to address this because I think I did refer to it as that before, and then realised that might have I might have stumbled into a hornet's nest with that one.
1: Um, look, you can call it whatever you'd like, really. There is certainly magical realist things going on in there there's there's all sorts of other things as well there's a bit of a noir chapter there's some letters between people there's a kind of a lovecraftian horror section i mean there's all this magical stuff happening but I guess that's only part of it. I kind of let my imagination run a bit wild.
0: You really did. I did like it uh, when I stumbled over the chapter about the hard-boiled detective who pretty much has taken up all of the tropes that you expect, um, but of course she's female um, and, you know, really kind of kicking ass in this chapter, which I enjoyed thoroughly, I have to say.
1: Oh, great. I'm glad you liked that. I I didn't know what I was doing. I'm just glad it worked out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of revenge uh, kind of porn, let's just say, going on in there. Yeah. Um, So so there's some really, really extraordinary characters characters. I think there's a beautiful kind of uh, humour to this book as well. I really felt that that was running through it, but also this real undercurrent of, you know, of people processing a great sadness through these quite over-the-top sort of renderings. Talk about where the book came from and, and how this emerged.
1: Yeah, really... Last year, I was, I was trying to write a novel, um, and I was writing what was pretty much a normal realist Australian novel, because that's what I thought I had to do, because that's what was being published. And I got a bit of a way in, and I just realized it was really boring, um, You know, middle-aged people having affairs and going to coastal towns and slamming fly screen doors, and I just didn't want to write a book like that. I, so I set myself the challenge of trying to write something as well as I could, but that was also really entertaining and interesting the whole way through, and from there... I started reinventing it with every new chapter and trying to tell the story in different genres and using different voices. And I I wanted the idea that each new chapter started almost as if it was a new story but then to weave back in. And I had no idea if it was going to work out or not, but I just decided to keep doing it and see if I could finish it. And, yeah, I still can't quite believe it's been published.
0: It's really great. I, I was actually talking uh, with our earlier guest, uh, James Christina, who's also written a book that people are classifying as experimental about, you know, how much of a straight tra- trajectory we see a lot of publishing going on. You know, there's there's books that have very linear constructs and narratives. Um, and it's always so refreshing to see something that kind of plays with form quite a lot, as much as your book really does. You do something that a, a friend of mine who judges a lot of uh, fiction prizes uh, says is always a risk, which is going into the animal perspective but I think you do it really beautifully especially when you sort of you know smoosh it together with the human perspective immediately afterwards in a quite startling and interesting way your chapter on the um on the river rat actually really captivated me
1: oh great I I thought that was where I'd lose readers actually I thought it's (laughs) just gotten too weird now but I had too much fun writing it and I just kept going with it if I knew that about the prize thing maybe I wouldn't have done it I'm probably stuffed myself there um but yeah, I, I, I like writing about animals, I, I find them interesting and fascinating, and I don't really understand people, so I was probably just covering up for that.
0: <laughs> if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR, I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm joined today by Robbie Arnott, who's discussing his latest book, Flames, which is set in Tasmania, but very much set in a, a strange um, other world, I guess, where characters are likely to do all sorts of things across a range of genres, uh, but definitely expect it to be an unexpecting uh, level of twists and turns. This is very much an Odyssey book, though, as well, because you are following a character through the various plot lines, which is uh, Charlotte McAllister, who's the you know, we start off with her sprinting away after her mother's death. So it's it's hard not to, you know, draw an assumption that this is a book that deals with themes like grief, but in a way that sort of sidesteps it and, and finds humour and other kind of farcical ways of approaching it. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think um grief and, and a family dealing with a significant trauma is at the heart of this book. But it's approached in a very roundabout sort of fashion by using these different genres and techniques and and I wanted the centre of the book to be really a simple story about family and, and the way things can fall apart when we don't know how to express things to each other or what we mean to each other and the really dramatic things that can occur just through simple mistakes like that. But at the same time, I wanted to set against a palette of this extraordinary, ridiculous place. And so it's said in this kind of otherworldly version of Tasmania, although the word Tasmania isn't in the book at all, which often surprises people, but it's true, I, I wrote it. Um,
0: but place names are, and I yeah, love that. Yeah, it's pretty
1: obvious. Yeah.
0: <laughs> which is wonderful because it's the regionalism that really preoccupies.
1: Yeah, and I just wanted it to be this entertaining kind of wild romp all the way through that could not be quite – you could never tell what was going to happen next, but at the same time the, what the characters are dealing with and how they're trying to come together as a family is, is really quite universal.
0: Although I do think that the premise that uh, that Charlotte's brother wants to create a coffin to contain her so she doesn't succumb to the family curse of resurrection, that he thinks that somehow it's going to be comforting to her if he makes a coffin rather than, you know, her presuming she's going to be, uh, you know, cremated like her, her ancestors. Um, so that this is his way of expressing love is building this coffin. And, and of course, you know, as most people would be, if your brother suddenly starts making you a coffin while you are still alive, uh, Charlotte is suitably petrified and runs off.
1: Oh, yeah. It's totally mad. Like, it's not at all a rational thing to do. But what I was trying to achieve there was to to have one of those male characters who doesn't know how to express themselves or how to, how to approach things in a rational way and deal with their emotions, but instead just take some form of action. You know, when, when something's gone wrong and people don't know how to deal with it and you look outside and a man's mowing his lawn because he just – it feels the need to be in control and to just do something rather than say something. So I had – this character of Levi who is, is really not holding it all together well but he feels like he has to be putting some form of plan into action to be dealing with it and by doing something then you're taking control of it and at no point does he just stop and think maybe I should just talk to her, maybe we could have a chat, maybe we could deal with our issues and I think that's really common throughout a lot of young men and men in society and I wanted to reflect that in a fantastical way.
0: And I think you did a beautiful job of that. I think um, his sister does reflect at some point that she's so worried about him, but at least she's expressing her grief, whereas he just isn't, and that that's actually more troubling. Um, So that is kind of really stated in the book. Uh, One of the other uh, sections I really want to focus on is the chapter with Carl, who's a fisherman who has this quite moving relationship with a seal. In a strange way, this is the least magic realist, if you like, or the least fantastical kind of relationship in the book. It's it's utterly believable in many ways uh in a way that other sections you know really push the boundaries uh in this section uh Carl goes out fishing for large tuna with his his seal I guess he refers to it as his seal but they're really incredibly bonded in some ways this is his most important relationship and I'm not going to give too much away to to let you know where it goes but I found it really moving
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah. I like, I've like. i had some people be quite disappointed because they, from mainland Australia, who Googled it and asked me, oh, where in Tasmania does this fishing tradition take place? And I've had to say, I, I made it up. It's, <laughs> it's not real. But yeah, like, I don't know, I was really inspired by uh, farmers and their sheepdogs and the relationships they have. And also the history in, of Eden in southern New South Wales, where whalers used to hunt with killer whales alongside them for. Decades and decades, and this partnership between man and beast, I was always fascinated by. And I thought if I created this relationship, it, it might be believable and, and moving in a way. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of glad I, I might have pulled it off. But yeah, it wasn't easy.
0: It was incredibly believable, and I think there's even a book that was written or fictionalised book that was written about the relationship between uh, Fisher. Uh, folk and whales and how they work together and I thought a lot about that when I was reading this. But it's an interesting thing because this is a novel and of course novels are acts of imagination, they are non-fiction and it's a really interesting thing that still uh, people really want to try and find the real behind it. You, did you really approach this in a way that that was you know utterly embracing the novel with that intention to really kind of play imaginatively or was it to try and dig at those deeper truths?
1: It's, it's a bit of both really Um, i wanted to be as imaginative as possible because that's the stuff i like reading and i just hope that other people might like reading it too i wanted to push genres push boundaries and try and come up with stuff that you know really 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 was satisfying and different to read but at the same time i think good fiction really does have to be grounded in real truths Um, you can't have characters acting or believing or being so outside of any form of real humanity that then then they won't be understood and you won't be able to relate to them so it's finding that delicate mix and i like this is my first book, I still have no idea what I'm doing. So it, it might have worked out that way, but that's that's what I was trying to do. I think it needs to be grounded in, on at least one level, at least a sliver of reality.
0: Yeah. You did manage to get a very traditional literary form in there with the epistolary novel where you've got a series of, of really quite incredible letters between someone who is at the outer boundary of Lee, he's next level, um, and he gets his comeuppance, I have to say, in a rather delightful way. Uh, but, yeah, you've definitely dipped into that sort of Traditional sort of eighteenth-century novel or nineteenth-century uh, novel writing form.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to see if I could do it. Really, um, I just I thought it could be satisfying and funny to, to read something like that uh, that is in the middle of other forms of book that are very very different. And I'm just glad I haven't heard of anyone throwing it across the room and being too frustrated by the different <laughs> genres yet.
0: I do love it and I think uh, there was uh, – Jennifer Egan, I believe, made a point that, that books have become a little bit more conservative since the 19th century novel, Form, which broke the fourth wall willy-nilly and did all sorts of things with um, playing with form. And you've definitely done that here, at Robbie Arnett. I hope to see you progress in, this, in the manner in which you've started. Um, congratulations on Flames.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Mel.
0: And thank you for joining us on Backstory.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Three, Ah.
0: you've been listening to backstory the show about books the craft of writing and the people behind the lines i'm mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard you can listen to the live version of the show wednesdays at 12 on triple r join the stream on the triple r website or subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcatcher thanks for listening join me again soon